Hey, Dr. Becker, how are you? Good, good. Uh, thank you so um, much. So uh, it, it's very short notice. You're I, very welcome. I really appreciate you yeah, coming on. You know what? It, it's just a solicitor. Next week would have been extremely difficult here. It just works in terms of schedule. And it fits so well because we'll be talking about it in class tomorrow. So it's, per- it's, it's great. It's, it's perfect. Um, I want to introduce you first to my listeners. This is Dr. You're hearing the voice of Dr. Peter Becker. Uh, he received his PhD from Harvard in the American Studies program, and he holds a degree from Harvard, his MA in English, and Hamburg University. Uh, he is the professor of English 166 at Harvard uh, University's Extension School. It's the 20th century American novel. Uh, Dr. Becker, thank you so much for coming on Reading Aloud. Thank you for this uh, kind introduction. Yep, I, I look forward to it, and um, uh, I think this might be fun. Uh, it could be terrible too, so who knows? Let's let's roll the dice and see what happens. <laughs> okay. um, why why do you think? I mean, as opposed to Fitzgerald's other novels, why has this novel, which was a bust when it was released, why has it had such staying power it's all, it's almost a hundred years old and it's still one of the most popular novels in in american history w- why is that i mean um it, there are a couple of ways of answering this one is you know thinking of academia and the academic audience um and fitzgerald standing as an aestheticist and you know um what he does with the language how he how he works the individual phrases and works out to the paragraph and then the, the craftedness of the novel. Um, and it's uh, a very teachable text. It's not too long. Um, and it also has a great appeal to the you know, student audience. Uh, the, the characters uh, are all in their 20s and um, mm. I think they can relate well to them. Uh, on the, say, non-academic readers, um, I think what resonates with them and also, you know, professors or students uh, are a lot of the themes here. I mean, it's about love. Um, it's about what the United States is or what, what it was at the time of the 1920s after World War I. Um, and um, some of the dreams, the, the American dream, you know, can you um, reach large success um, by creating your own identity by recreating yourself and ignoring factors such as tradition or genealogy. Um, it touches on the ideas of immigration, um, you know, entering this country, uh, like the famous page, uh, the famous image of the, on the last page of the novel, you know, like an explorer or like, um, McCarraway, the narrator says, you know, I was a pioneer. And, uh, so, so all these, uh, factors that people struggle with or think about um, when, when they think about the USA, then um, they, they're kind of combined in this novel. Uh, another factor uh, might be, you know, it's really a decade novel, and it's something that Fitzgerald is famous for, invented. He creates this picture of the 1920s, and it has this very visual style um, with these descriptions and, and that makes it also very, very filmable. So you, you read these novels, you hear Pompadour, you think of the haircuts, you think of the parties, you think of the, you know, crystal, the, the cocktails. Um, and it's just so very visual and people like that recognition. And I think that that is, it's, it's a fun read in that sense. That's a great, that's a great answer. I, I wonder if you, um, from what you're talking about, I wonder if you bring your own point of view being an immigrant yourself, growing up in Germany. I wonder if how your perspective of this book differs from, say, my perspective. Yeah, I, I've been asked that before. Um, also, you know, when, say, with, with a Catholic novel or novels that deal with immigration, and I don't think that my history there was so typical because... Um, I, that's not what, what fascinates me on a personal level about this text. Um, it's more the idea of, of beauty and how how Fitzgerald dismantles it or shows the the downside of beauty, this play with the, the surface and the, the dark underside. Um, I, I, when I came 
to this country, one of the, the texts that really drew me in was Richard Wright's um, Black Boy, and, and you know that there's very little shared experiences uh, between his right. and mine, and yet it resonated with me. So um, uh, I don't know. I, would, what would your expectation be? Would it be that it's different because you know, I, like an immigrant comes here to create you know a new identity? I don't know. It's not what what struck me most about the text. Yeah, I I, I wonder um, if you could give us some historical context for the novel. It was published in twenty five. World War One had ended. The nation was in this uh, economic boom. What what is happening at at the time of its of its publishing? Um, I think you know from from the writer's perspective, um, World War One had only in indirect ways to do with it. Um, you know, one could say, oh, you know, the nineteen twenties on the one hand were this era of disillusionment. Uh, there was great ideas and ideals. Uh, for which the nation entered the war, kind of uh, fell flat. And um, so on the other hand, then you had these uh, almost hedonistic parties at age of you know, the, the so-called Roaring Twenties. Um, but of course, that's just one aspect of this time. Um, what I would say plays a role here is, is the experience of World War I in the sense that it um, catalyzed a group of writers who went abroad, in this case, white male authors all born in their 90s, uh, in the 1890s, um, who wanted to experience the war as an adventure, um, but who also just wanted to get away from something that felt to them a little bit parochial about the United States, about the literary tastes of the U.S., about what was taught in colleges and how they were supposed to write. And they, you know, after the war, I mean, Fitzgerald never got to enter the war, although he wanted to. Um, they formed this lost generation, and it was the idea of a generation of writers rather than regional writers. I mean, there was no longer a school of, say, San Francisco writers or Chicago writers or New York Knickerbocker writers, but they had the shared experience of, um, to, to a degree shared, of World War One, of being abroad, and of being exposed to other uh, literary traditions, the mm. French tradition. Um, so in that sense, I think maybe World War One can be seen as a catalyst. Um, but in a way, it was a little bit too early to write a novel about the 20s. In the 20s, and I think that might account for some of the restrained critical reception in the beginning. Mm. Um, sometimes you just need a little bit distance. And uh, Fitzgerald's style, this very, very finely crafted attention to, to sentences was very different to, say, Dreiser's American Tragedy, which was also, which was also pre, uh, published in 1925 and was a huge success. And that's a, you know, it's a great novel, um, and it's you know, carefully done, but in a very, very different style. And I, I think they literally taste some of the critics just in this particular instance. Um, turned against Fitzgerald, although I mean his first novel, *The Sight of Paradise*, was a huge success, as were his stories. I, I don't want to take anything away from the greatness of *The Great Gatsby*, and yet I wonder how much attention it would be getting if this sort of cult of personality that was F. Scott Fitzgerald and Zelda Fitzgerald, if that wasn't such a part of the story. I mean, he lived this this incredibly romantic and broken experience. And people almost know more about him and his personal life and his drinking and his lack of confidence, et cetera, and, and his issues with his, with his wife than they do about his stories themselves. And, and, and I wonder if that has helped him and his, like the critical response to his novels or has it, has it, has it hurt him? Uh, you, you mean his celebrity status yeah. after his war, uh, after his death? After his death, um, yeah. Whether that helped him. Um, I'm sure they informed one another. I mean, he is a celebrity, or he liked to live the life of a celebrity in a celebrity culture, or uh, where glamour is the topic of his novel, but in the underside of glamour and beauty. And um, think of the twenties also the era of you know, uh, film emerging and the film industry. 
and uh, in the early 30s. And um, many of his texts are really very filmable, very, um, uh, say, unlike texts that delve into consciousness and memory, which, you know, what, what would a camera do? I mean, uh, how do you film consciousness? And it becomes mm. awkward um, how, how these interior monologues have to be shown. But for Fitzgerald, that's all very, uh, you cannot capture that very well in scenes and shots. There is there's a specific configuration of people and they're recognizable. You have a lavish uh, setting and you have such emphasis on, on great lines and um, beautiful lines. So it makes it very cinematic in this case. Um, and that, that, of course, goes well with the celebrity image he wanted to cultivate or uh, this yearning for stardom. Um, so, but, you know, the, his personal breakup or uh, struggle, or as he calls it, crack up, can't really be separated so nicely from what he writes about, because even though this novel deals with glamour and beauty, I mean, uh, think of the first three chapters, uh, I mean, as you will discuss the novels, uh, of The Great Gatsby, they're all about parties, the first one at the Buchanan's, the second one in the, and the hotel, the third one at Gatsby. And they all end with something very deflating. The yeah. first one with a solitary man watching another solitary man. The second one um, you know, with, with blood in the bathroom and a broken nose. And there are these bathroom scenes throughout the novel that, that show the underside of what really happens after the, the performance that the party is over. Or the third chapter that ends you know, with an amputated wheel um, where technology and, and the body come together and it, it becomes this glory image. So um, th this breakdown or this underside is, is part not only of his life, but also of his novels, and, uh, very much so in Tender is the Night. So um, I don't think you can say, oh, you know, the novels deal with one thing and the, his life is another thing and just the life informs the novels because they deal with the same phenomenon. How, how long have you been teaching the, uh, the Great Gatsby? Um, teaching it, I think this is my second year. And do you enjoy it? Do you get a lot out of it? I, I, I enjoy teaching it because um, students respond very well. And they have usually they've read it in high school. So they, when they read it again and again, there's, they know it better than other novels. And um, they identify with, or they get upset about how Daisy is portrayed. And, yeah. Um, uh, or they identify with that lo longing protagonist. You know. um, personally, I, I would even prefer teaching Tender as a Night, but it's a much more complex novel and, and longer. So there's always you know, that, that practical consideration. Yeah, it was so interesting when you're in the first class, you're talking about composing this, building the syllabus and thinking about all the things that go into, you couldn't choose just your favorite books and the books that are most teachable and accessible. You had to, there's only so many weeks in a semester and there's only so many pages people can read and retain. So you have to sort of juggle all those things at once. We read uh, Tender's the Night in the Book Club a couple of months ago and... and uh, oh, wonderful. Yeah, and personally, I, I prefer Tender's the Night. Um, I mean, it's, you know, they're, they're both uh, spectacular in their own rights, but for some reason... Um, the depiction of mental illness in Tenders the Night is just so incredibly, um, there's so much depth and it's so moving. Um, just such a wonderful novel. Uh, but they're all great. Dr. Becker, I cannot, I won't keep you anymore. I, I can't thank you enough for being generous with your time and, and, and coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. You're so welcome and have fun with the book. Thanks. Thank I'll you. see you in class. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. That was Dr. Peter Becker. Sam. Hey, it was great. Uh, hey, it's Reading Aloud. Hey! Hey! <laughs> it's the book club episode. We got a doozy, folks. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm joined by uh, Sam Kiefer, who's sitting across from me. Hey, everybody. As opposed to to my right. Sam is typically sitting to my right in front of a computer and, a, and an enormous sound board um, composing the show, editing and producing the show. Today, he is replaced by Cody. Hi, Cody. Sam doesn't actually know how to use this giant board, no, by that's the hurtful. way. That's I don't, hurtful. I think that's a lie. I don't know why you're starting the podcast insulting my friend Sam. 
Cody is currently wearing a backpack for no reason whatsoever. Oh, no, there's a reason. Cody had it delivered to the studio as opposed to his home. Do you not have a home address? There it is. A not, not a trustworthy one. Fair enough. <laughs> I, when I lived in New York, I also did the same thing out of P.O. Box because like, people stole my mail all the time. Uh, Cody and Sam. How are you guys? Great. Good. Uh, one of us read the book in the last month. Cody, have you read The Great Gatsby? When I was a junior in high school. Yeah. Do yeah. you remember a thing about it? It was written by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Yes. And I only know that because I'm looking cover. at the cover. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a long time ago. Sam, um, thank you so much for, for joining me in this Thanks book club. Thanks for having me. And I appreciate you reading this book. It's so um, good. I forget how fucking good this book yeah. is. It's so good. Well, let's start there. Let's start with forgetting. So it, it, There's a lot of... Um, when you read a book like this, it comes with enormous baggage. There's enormous expectations mm -hmm. because it is the quote unquote, like great American novel. So you're going into it assuming, already assuming it's greatness. Yeah. So your, your eyes are, are tainted. Um, and I can't really think of another book besides like maybe um, To Kill a Mockingbird or, or, or Catcher in the Rye or something. And it's got that double down... Uh how do I word this? Nervousness when reading it because it's already a, extremely high, like high expectations. Yep. And they made a movie that was panned. Yes. So you've got two things. Or one, this yeah. thing was already amazing, and the version of it most people are familiar with is terrible. Yes. Yes. And there's a version. Uh, a version. There's a version in the '70s with like uh, who uh, who is in it. Um, not Paul Newman. Robert Redford. But Robert Redford plays right. Gatsby in that one. Um, I he guess plays people, all the parts. He plays all the parts. Mm -hmm. It's a one-man show. Yeah. Um, there was actually a production of a play in New York called Gats. Really? Yeah, which they, they read. There was a guy on stage. He was temping in an office. That was the premise. He just, he's bored. He picks up the book and he starts reading. He reads the entire book. So each night they, each, each night, night he reads the entire book. This poor bastard read the entire book and all the, his coworkers reenact the book. And so you're watching him read it and then these people who work in the office like assume the characters and interact. Is this a popular show? It sounds It was a huge hit. Brutal. It's like, I mean, three, over three hours long. I think there's two intermissions. Anyway, um, what is your, what was your relationship with this book before you read it for the podcast? Had so you read it All right, before? so before I read this, uh, or before I read it this time, I would have read it when Cody read it in, I want to say, beginning of high school. Yeah, junior, sophomore year. Yeah, but at that time, it's, it's, 16, 17-year-old me being forced to read this in a small town in Wisconsin. So my views are nothing. Yeah. They're, I mean, the town I grew up in had, I think, I think when I left, it had ballooned up to 22,000 people. Oh, wow. So it was like a real, you know, stereotypical small town in Wisconsin. So I remember reading it, understanding why it was important, understanding like, oh, this is a good literary device. This is well-written. This character comes back. Oh, good, they did this. Like, getting what I was supposed to learn. But almost everything else, as a 31-year-old, having left that small town and being on my eighth year in Los Angeles as a transplant from a small town into a very big, busy place is a completely different book. Yeah. I read it this time, uh, empathizing and laughing out loud at everything Nick Carraway says Right out of the get-go, I, I highlighted the um, the first page of it where he says, um, I'm inclined to reserve all judgments, a habit that has opened up many curious natures to me and also made me the victim of not a few veteran bores uh, right out of the gate is something I picked up over the last decade where someone will say something to me, I want to go, I don't want to have this conversation. I want to walk away, but I will put myself in their shoes and go, he's probably having a rough night. And then immediately I'm like, oh, God damn it. And now I'm listening to, I've spent so many till 4 a.m. sitting on somebody's deck while they smoke and tell me stories. Right. And I go, I just want to go home. Yeah, absolutely. So to you high schoolers um, who are listening, who dread reading this book, um, it's a lot to take in now, uh, but you will appreciate it as you age. But we, what you can take away from it now is that these people, as was written so thoughtfully um, in an email from a listener um, who is teaching this book to, I believe, her junior class. This is Sarah Todd, Mrs. Todd or Miss Todd, who is in the Department of English in a high school in Simi Valley. Um, she's read it over 50 times and 
what makes it interesting, I'm quoting, for reading and discussion in my English classes, sometimes I wonder what Fitzgerald would say if he knew how deep an impact this book had had on so many people's lives. Uh, the book was published almost 100 years ago, and we still see the Tom Buchanans of the world who peaked in life at an early age and are constantly looking for a way to relive, relive these glory days. We also see people who use each other to try to get ahead, much the way Gatsby used, uses uh, Wolfsheim and vice versa. Um, the people in this book... Like you said earlier, before we started the podcast, the people in these book in this book we see today, yeah, they still exist. This is not a time capsule. Yeah, you're not looking back into the past and saying, "Oh wow, in 1920 it was like a bunch of dinosaurs walking around." Yeah, exactly. Who are these people? No, these people are today. This happens every couple of years. Um, something new will come out, and then somebody goes, "Oh, this is just a rewriting of." This thing. Around Seinfeld, they started to write sitcom characters where everyone was terrible. Like, yeah, you yeah, didn't yeah. have one good character. And, and then fun a bunch to laugh of, at the terrible. Yeah, and then yeah. that made its way to, like, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Yeah. We're like, man, all these characters. David Brent and, you know, yeah. in The Office. Yeah. Every one of these characters is terrible. Yeah. Reading back through this, I was like, man, this has been happening since exactly. the 20s. Yeah, completely. Nick, is an asshole who's just constantly making fun of everybody in this book and pointing out their physical appearance, but you side with him because everybody is terrible. Yeah. Everyone he has to interact with is the worst. Yeah. So, like, this this is, you know, might as well be the first uh, Jim from The Office where you're stuck watch, right. watching him shrug his eyes and look directly into the camera, and you want to go, I know, dude. We're all on the I same know. page. This guy's the worst. Completely. This guy's the loudest. Yep. Uh, before we get into the book, uh, just a little background on Fitzgerald himself. Um, he died in 1940 in Hollywood. He collapsed less than a mile away from this studio at the Pantages. Wait, from this studio? From this studio oh, at the uh, Pantages Theater. He went to see a movie with his... His uh, girlfriend at the time, who was a gossip columnist, he collapsed in the lobby, and he had sort of a small heart attack. He collapsed in the lobby, and he said to her, he goes, oh, God, they all think I'm drunk. They think oh, I'm really? drunk. He was, he was so embarrassed. He's like, they think it's just like, there's Scott Fitzgerald. Look, you can't hold his liquor. How, how embarrassing. When he, actually, he was dying. Uh, a few days later, December 20th, I think, is the date he died in his apartment um, just south of the Sunset Strip. Um, he died of a, a severe heart attack. He was 44. And The Great Gatsby was not what The Great Gatsby is today. Mm -hmm. um, it sold 22,000 copies in 1925. They couldn't get rid of them. Yeah. Uh, it, was, uh, it was like, had mixed reviews. And this the, is book number... His second book. Two? His first okay. book was called This Side of Paradise, which is about the flapper generation and the rich and the wealthy and the parties. And, but it wasn't sour. And so people, I think, came to this book expecting another party. And then they're like, oh, God, life is terrible. Sure. All of us are caught in the past and we'll never get past that. <laughs> and we're all just dreamers who are just fucking lost and broken. Um, people came to the book with those expectations. And I think we're disappointed there also is not like a strong female character in it. Um, no. And I think people turn off by that. Anyway, uh, I did some research. In his final year, 1940, this is his total royalties, $13.13. That's how much he made in the final year of his That's life. That's like when uh, all of our actor friends always think it's real funny to post their checks for like two cents yeah. on Instagram to be like, eh, making it. Yeah. Get it? Yeah. Ha, ha, royalties. Ha. Yeah. Meanwhile, like he had a dog. So- so Fitzgerald like went to Princeton. He's from a small. He's from uh, Saint Paul, Minnesota. He lived on a fancy street, but he was like the last house on the end of the street. He didn't come from wealth. He desired that. He wanted to be a part of that universe. He wanted to go to Princeton. He wanted to be a, a part of like old money and and wanted to be um, respected by that community. And wrote This Side of Paradise, was turned down twice, was finally accepted, and he was a fucking hit. He was a like, toast of the town. Everyone wanted to meet him, get to know him. He married this beautiful woman who he met in Mississippi when he was in the army, this woman, Zelda Zaire, who was from this amazing family. Her dad was a, like a Supreme Court justice. She was like the debutante of the town. And, he was, and it was like all these army guys were in this town. Everyone was fighting for her hand, and he won it because mm -hmm. he was handsome and clever and smooth. And, but she was like, eh, I'm not sure if you're the one. And then he published a book and she was like, oh, okay, you're cool. Um, and they became like the face of like the 20s party scene. 
Like she was beautiful and could dance and was lively and like smoked and talked back to people. And he was a brilliant writer and they were just, there was like, you know, the toast of the town. Um, then she developed schizophrenia, was committed and died in a fire uh, like after at, he died. At the hospital where she was committed? At the hospital. There's a fire in the hospital Jeez. and she died in the hospital. Um, he spent all his money. I feel like did everyone in the past die horrifically? Dude, I so, feel like before 1940, there was only like six or seven ways you could die and they're all <laughs> insanity. <laughs> Drowning fire, yeah. shot in the you heart. You drowned in a fire. Or you're eaten by a wolf. <laughs> Um, yeah. so, so he lived this amazing, like this glamorous life. Everyone thinks he's like, you know, the greatest, uh, figure in American literature history, but he was a drunk. He was a broken down drunk who blew all his money on fancy hotels and booze mm-hmm. and meals and paying for his daughter's private school and paying for his wife's, uh, mental bills. Well, I was, uh, if anyone picks up, if anyone's reading this at home, if anyone picks up the, uh, the version I'm holding, the paperback, the Simon and Schuster uh, reprint, the 90th anniversary. I was laughing on the back. The picture they have of him mm. is a classic over-the-shoulder stoic f- pose. But I was laughing, picturing. Uh, I'm wondering, is this the classic over-the-shoulder pose, or could they just not rein him in to look yeah. at the camera? Or is he so drunk they were like, "Hey, hey, like over here," and if they the- got one shot of him over the shoulder, and they're like, "Fuck it, it's been four hours." If the That's camera, the best we're gonna get. If the camera panned down, he'd have a gin and tonic in both hands. <laughs> yeah, All right, yeah. let's get to the book. All right. Uh, first question: Why is there a Daisy Buchanan's in like every city in America? Like the name of a bar? Like she's a fucking terrible person. She committed vehicular manslaughter. Why would you open a bar and call it Daisy well, Buchanan's? That, yeah, that's uh, you've been that, in a Daisy Buchanan's. Well, that's right? something America does: is like take a person, clean them up, like yeah, at she's Columbus pretty. Day. Yeah, exactly. Oops. Great, great point. Um, so. Uh, Boy, how are we getting into this? Where do I even fucking start? So um, we're peering into the world of the wealthy, of the privileged by our narrator, who isn't wealthy. He doesn't really come from means. He lives simply. And and so we're seeing all these characters through his eyes, right? Um, And I feel like Fitzgerald is Nick. Like he's coming into the world of of the rich and the elite and is sort of like watching them and is studying them and writing down how they behave. And they don't, um, they're not uh, portrayed in a very good manner. No, but this is one of those things that I was talking about that like adult me really globbed onto this time around where if you were to bump into me at a classic up in the Hollywood Hills party, I wouldn't describe me as mean now, and I wouldn't describe, I'm I'm never rude in any way, but I am very quick to turn off and be cold. You know, people are like, hey, this is so-and-so, and and I go, it's nice to meet you. And like, then I'm right back in my world. I'm real kind of standoffish, because I've been to enough of these parties, and that's what it reminds me about Nick, where when you first start to read, like, on page two. two, The first two pages. The second page, he describes, he goes, he's describing, um, is he describing Tom? And he goes, a national figure in a way, in a way one of those men who reach such an acute limited excellence at 21 that everything afterward savior, savors of anticlimax. Yeah. That's such an asshole thing to say, but I get that but, yeah. because I'm that guy looking around a party knowing, going, oh, there's this guy. He had one good song with this album, still at this party, right. telling girls about how awesome it was being right. in Puddle of Mud and... You're never going to do that again. Yeah. And that's such a mean thing to say, but you made me this way. So many of these parties where you came up and you're like, I'm a singer of Puddle of Mud. And I'm like, I know, man, we've had this conversation <laughs> every fucking time. Well, it's like McConaughey in, in, in um, um, Dazed and Confused. I mean, yeah. it's like these guys who never got past when they were great and successful. They want to hold on to that and they never move past it. And, and talking about... Um, like seeing someone when you first came to the big city and were like, wow, I'm just going to take it all in and holy cow. And now sort of realizing like you start to pass judgment uh, on page two, he says, reserving judgments is a matter of infinite hope, <laughs> which is true. Like before and then later on, on, on page two, Gatsby, who represented everything for which I have an, an unaffected scorn. Uh, I'm jumping around. Uh, this responsiveness had nothing to do with that flabby 
impressionability, which is dignified under the name of the creative temperament. It is an extraordinary gift for hope, a romantic readiness such as I have never found in any other person, (laughs) which is not likely I shall ever find again. It is what preyed on Gatsby, what foul dust floated in the wake of his dreams that temporarily temporarily closed out my interest in the abortive sorrows and short-winded elations of men. That's so fucking, that's such a brutal thing. Brutal! Here's what I Here's what I highlighted on page two when he's talking about himself. Because, again, this is me at a party. He goes, in reference to himself, he goes, conduct may be founded on the hard rock or the wet marshes. But after a certain point, I don't care what it's founded on. Exactly. He just openly goes, look, you can be a nice person. You can be a mean person. But also, I'm tired. I didn't sleep much yesterday, so I'm going to walk away from this this conversation. A dickhead is a dickhead is a dickhead. Today's show is sponsored by Howl FM. It's like the Netflix for podcasts. Specifically with Howl Premium, which is only $4.99 a month, and with the promo code READING, READING, yeah, you get a full month of Howl free. And you can check out exclusive content to Howl, including this new dramatic miniseries called Fruit. It tells the story of an African-American professional football player who struggles with his sexuality. It's written and directed by Issa Rae, who's best known as the creator of the critically acclaimed web series The Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl. She also writes and stars in the upcoming uh, HBO comedy Insecure. Uh, Also on Howl Premium, you can get every episode of every podcast we offer. All the archives, Mark Maron, all Earwolf and Wolf Pop shows you can get on your iPhone, your Android phone, and on the web. It's only $4.99 a month. So when you check in, Type in reading into the checkout and get the first month free. Remember, that's howl.fm, H-O-W-L.fm. Use the promo code reading and expand your brain. Let's talk about, uh, it's funny how he, he describes um, like the difference between old money and new money. So old money is... Um, is uh, uh, Daisy and Tom and um, the golfer whose name I'm blanking on. Is, uh, is that Jordan? Yeah, Jordan. Yeah. They're old money. So they, they don't work. They're fucking lazy and shallow and callous. Yeah, and they're confused by the idea of when Nick has to go to work or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they don't consider, let's see if I can find this passage. They don't consider the future. They don't, they don't even think about like, what happens, what's going to happen um, tomorrow? Yeah. They, that- they're just floating in the present and just like the surface, like what's going to get me off right this minute? Because mm-hmm. everything else is taken care of. I don't have to worry about what's going to happen. What's going to get me off? A fucking gin and tonic. Yeah. A ride in the car, a party. And it's like that type of person. We all have those friends now where you you almost have to point it out for them. Like if someone's like, hey, we should grab a beer. And you have to be like, don't you have like kids? Do you have like day? Do you have to go to daycare in the world? But like these people don't have responsibilities. But it's just that inability to think past. Like we should go do this. The moment. And you're like, don't you have? Yeah. Don't. Can we just go? We just go do this thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It seems well, really I cool. mean, you talk about kids. I mean, Daisy and Tom have this child who we see for a page. She's never spoken about. They have absolutely no relationship with her because she represents the future. And she's she, going to grow and develop. And they're like, nope, I don't want to do anything about that. And when she is spoken, it's real false. I forget. I didn't highlight it, but they said something. They're like, oh, love of my life. Oh, sweet angel, the way they talk yeah, to yeah, the yeah. child, which is a dead giveaway. You don't care about this child. Exactly. That level of like over love. They're like, oh, hello, mommy's perfect angel. And then they just leave the room. Yep. And then they have no interaction with her at all. Um, there's, uh, let me see what, I'm, I'm flipping through the book right now. Um, oh, yeah. yeah there, I love that Fitzgerald shows us that Nick is like is aware, like he gets it. He knows what these people are about. He's not just some rube who's like taken in by all of it. There's page 71. Um, He's, he's meeting with, um, with Gatsby and Wolfsheim, this Mm -hmm. like tricky, like, you know, a uh, guy who may have fixed the 1919 World Series. Mm-hmm. He's who a, they, you know they wanted to say, just say Jew. Oh, I know sure. you want to say. Yes, yeah. Quit calling him crafty and tricky. He spends a paragraph on his nose. Um, <laughs> I gotcha. Uh, four with, so, so this, this bomb of 70. Um, uh, Mr. Wolf, yeah, Mr. Wolfsheim's nose flashed at my in, 
flashed flashed at me indignantly. He turned around on the door and says, don't let that waiter take away my coffee. Then he went out on the sidewalk and they shot him three times in his full belly and drove away. Four of them were electrocuted, I said, remembering. Five with Becker, his nostrils turned to me in an interested way. I understand you're looking for a business connection. The juxtaposition of these two remarks were startling. So he, uh, so our narrator, Nick, is like, how the fuck did this guy jump from describing like these guys getting shot to him saying, hey, you want to make a deal? Yeah. Like he's, whoa, whoa, we jumped, we jumped here. This, this conversation just changed. And it shows that Nick is savvy. Nick is aware. He understands social graces. He understands how a conversation is supposed yeah, to flow. Yeah, he tolerates a lot, but he's not... He, he doesn't not understand a lot. He yeah, sees yeah, yeah. a lot and tolerates it. And that's such a like uh, old money versus new money thing to do is like to not be aware of the social cues when the person you're talking to is merely tolerating your behavior. Mm-hmm. Like most people can pick that up when you're telling a story and someone's going, uh-huh. And yeah, you're like, right. oh, you don't give a fuck. You, most people can tell. Right. But that's such a like his old money versus new money thing. All the old money people are like, I'm telling a story. And Nick openly goes, Okay. And yeah, they go, right. oh, I'll just keep right on going then. And he's right. like, I'm just openly tolerating you. Just <laughs> play candy to your face. There's something interesting about, I want to talk about this, um, this these, the eyes of this advertisement. Oh, that's Which right. is in the valley, it's described as the Valley of Ashes, mm-hmm. which is right between the city and the country. And they're driving there, they're going to and from this place. And like this in-between spot is this like land of desolation. It's like just a pile of dirt, smokestacks, it's um, ash. It's like the, it's like, um, I'm, I'm reaching here, but it's like the, it, it's almost like the representation of the hangover of, like the party is in the city. You don't see the dirt, you just see the flash and the fun and the parties in the country. It's like Long Island and it's fabulous. And then you get between there and it's just fucking like all the, all the, all the soot and all the smoke that, is generated from building these buildings and building these parties. Like you don't see it when you're at the party, mm-hmm. but but um, Fitzgerald shows us this world. That's and just, that's that's where Wilson's at, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. So Wilson, Wilson fucking lives his life. Who is who is the lowest member of society in this universe? He's an immigrant. He has no no money. He runs a garage. He's he's old timey, stereotypically sick, where they don't give him an actual illness. Yeah. He's just constantly like. Yeah. Not doing well. Yeah, he's not well. Yeah. And it's it's always sooty and brown. And that's where we get this advertisement of these two eyes. I feel like it's Dr. I've written it down here. Dr. T.J. Eckelberg. The ads of this eye, it's like some eye doctor. There's no face. Yeah. You're just seeing these eyes in this yellow uh, glasses peering down like this sort of omniscient presence like who like why is that there why did Fitzgerald write about this ad and what is its significance uh I here's the thing when I read it I wrote it was I don't have my note I forget I couldn't find it but I wrote something that like that might just be something either I didn't understand Mm -hmm. or I wonder if it it felt a little bit like that was going to play a bigger part then didn't. Yeah. Like it was going to be paid off. Either maybe it does play a much bigger part. And if someone's listening right now and they're like, ah, you idiot, it's this. It's not <laughs> God totally. watching them. Or, yeah. you know, or, or, uh, or, yeah, or that um, it, was, it was going to pay off more in the end. Cause they, they do spend a long time describing yeah. it and like how important. And he always notices it. He, when, when they went back, um, so they're going to the city and Gatsby is in the car in Buchanan's car with Daisy. They get to the city and Wilson, not Wilson, uh, uh, Tom pulls over to get gas from Wilson. And he's fucking Wilson's wife. Yeah. And Wilson is sick. (laughs) And obviously it seems like he's realized that he's found out what's happened with his wife, Myrtle, who Tom is is fucking. Mm -hmm. And buying dogs for is buying frivolous. Well, is one buying thing. You want to fuck a man's wife? That's one thing. Don't buy somebody her. a dog. Yep. it's a bold move. I, there's, there's so many things that happen in this book where it's like, I, I want this, so I don't care. I'm yeah. going to take care of it. I'm just going to get it. Um, he and, and and Wilson is. What I deduced was that like he knew Myrtle had cheated on him. Yeah, because he says 
like he and Tom were talking about like this deal to like sell him a car. And he's like, do you want to buy my car? He's like, I'm, I'm, I feel sick. I feel ill. And I'm taking my wife West. I'm getting out of here. And Tom was like, oh no, my side piece is mm-hmm. going to get out of here. What's going on? Um, and Wilson, of course, ends up, Tom sort of tells him that it was Gatsby. Who, sure. Um, but yeah, Wilson and Myrtle, like, and that the, the party that they had at the hotel, or was it an apartment? It was at an apartment. It was at Myrtle's sister's apartment. Jesus, that party is awful. I think it's the second chapter. Wait, um, is that where they're kind of going at each other? Uh, yes. Where yeah, Tom... Where Tom is like, hey, come into the city and we're going to hang out with my mistress. I'm going to oh, yeah, show that's her off. I, I wrote, uh, I wrote so a disgusting. note. That's uh, Before that even happens, because remember you were talking about you still see all those characters today. I see the most at those like Hollywood parties if I ever get dragged to them. I see the most Tom Buchanan's. That's the character I see the most. Yeah. That guy who's just like, I want to walk up to him and go, hey, I hear you. You can just stop. Yeah. You can turn off. Yeah, I relax. Fu- I, I fucking hear you. Yeah. But there's a part... Where like not only does he say, "Hey, we're going into the city," but he tries to pull this douche power moves, and he goes, "I'll drive your car." Yeah, let's talk about that. That's just such such a douchey like textbook alpha male douchey like. Not only it's the way that like some guys will pay for a meal. Not in a helpful way, but like to when assert. you go to get, when you go to get like take your debit card out to chip into your check, that guy goes, huh, "I've already taken care of it." We're like, "I guess thanks." Like I yeah. know I know you didn't buy me this. You just want me to know that you can buy meals for ten people at once, and it's no big deal to you. Uh, Desperately asserting power. Yeah, it's just one of those like- moves where he's he's losing he's losing her to Gatsby. So he's just, the more he's losing her, the more he just amps up his alpha male. Yeah. And he's like, you know what? Fuck it. He's like, I'm going to wrap some whiskey in a towel. Yeah. We're going to the city right. and I'll drive your car. And I think Gatsby even says something. He's like, it doesn't have a lot of gas. And and Tom Buchanan says, there's plenty of gas. Yeah. Which is like, that doesn't even make sense. Right. That's just an alpha male. Like that whole train of way of thinking is an alpha male way of thinking where you're like, you're not even considering facts. You're like, it has plenty of gas. And someone's like, no, I'm literally showing you it as a quarter tank. And he's like, more than enough. We'll all go now. You'll ride with him. Just deciding where people are going to ride. Like, And that and that lack of gas forces him to stop and interact with Wilson, mm-hmm. his mistress's husband, and have this strange conversation with him. It's also described, I'm not actually sure what page it is, but he's, he said he felt, Nick felt the omnipresent eyes watching them the eyes of the advertising advertisement and then he also felt the eyes of Myrtle who he looks up at the because the, they their apartment is above the gas station and she's watching them she's Myrtle seeing well that's the, that's also the part where he's like isn't she like boarded up inside yeah or she's basically. like trying to get out and he openly well, that's some real solid uh 1920s misogyny there where he's like what's that noise and he just goes oh that's Myrtle I nailed her into like I boarded her up in the room and nobody goes oh you can't do that to a person yeah that's a person everyone's like oh well she's nuts not in 1922 Mm -hmm. Um, you get locked in a room real fast there's something also about um, a little bit I want to talk a little bit about the east and the west it seems like the middle west and this was represented in a really great email that I got from Terry, who's from uh, Minneapolis, uh, he points out that the Middle West seems to represent uh, innocence. Yes. Um, And the West is innocence, and the East is where you get, um, the East is where you get corrupted, basically. Um, And and it's the same in, in the difference between East, uh, the East Egg and West Egg. West Egg is where, um, is where Nick lives, mm-hmm. East, uh, where the new money is, or, and where Nick has to like scrape by in his little shitty apartment. Um, East Egg is where the old money lives, which is where Daisy and Tom uh, live. And that is the height of, of uh, elitism and money and, and uh, glamour. Uh, I feel like Fitzgerald is saying something very specific. Yeah, which is why it's, from, it's yeah. kind of uh, not irritating, but like why it's one of the many big deals that to go to Gatsby's party, you have to go yeah. out of this world. You have to go to, what is it, East Egg? Or? Uh, West. You have to go to West Egg, yeah. which like adds to it. Or like, not only is this amazing party happening, but it's happening in West Egg. Totally. Like, can you believe it? Totally. Um, uh, 
At the end of the story, Nick, this is from the email from Terry. At the end of the story, Nick says, this has been a story about the West after all. Uh, which I yeah. think is, he, and then Terry says, what the fuck does that mean? Um, I, I wish I knew, Terry. Uh, but thank you for your, for your email. Um, I have another email here from uh, Elena, who is always a member of the book club. Thank you, Elena, for sharing your thoughts. She says, um, it's remarkable that Daisy has a flower name. That Fitzgerald chose, uh, that chose the name Daisy. A flower needs sun and water to stay alive. So, so Daisy can't live without money and, and luxury and, and entertainment. She needs someone to, t- to admire her, to take care of her, just like a delicate flower. Uh, and, and there's a part where the first time Nick comes to lunch with them, she calls him a rose. That's right. So there's all, there's all sorts of, um, so nature becomes uh, part of the discussion. Um, she also says, I absolutely love the whole episode of Gatsby and Daisy's first meeting after a long separation, especially the passage about him comparing real Daisy with the image he created and loved. It's an incredibly right idea. We tend to idealize the people we love, adding to them the qualities that they do not have and ignoring the traits we do not like and then convince ourselves that the image we create is, is real. Uh, thank you, Yelena. You're exactly right. And I want to talk about that, this image of, of we all do it. Yeah. We all, it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's... Um, well, every, everyone's dated someone, been either broken up with them, that person then regretted your decision or been dumped by that person and wanted to get that person desperately back, yearned for them over however many months, however many years, gotten back with them and just been like, oh, I made a terrible mistake. Yeah. I, yeah. okay. And it, like it, sometimes it happens immediately. You can miss a person you were with for years and then get back and be like, oh, I just made all that up. I mm-hmm. just made your, oh, that's right. You're garbage. <laughs> right. I, I made all of these things up and then now I'm mad at myself. I could have been having a blast for the past year. Yeah. So like, yeah, you just pedestal people. Um, and it's not even, it's, it's, and it's people and it's, it's, it's jobs, it's sure. artists, it's whatever we, uh, 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 a city, a place. I mean, it, it, pick any dream, anything that you idealize in your brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fitzgerald gives Gatsby this, this dream. He has this amazing relationship with this woman in the past, right? He has to go to war. Daisy can't wait for him. She marries Tom. So Gatsby cannot get past this idealized relationship with Daisy. Time passes. He changes, but he, he, doesn't, he, he makes no assumptions that she changes. Mm-hmm. He assumes in his brain that she is exactly the way she was in whatever year it was when they met. And he's created this image of her that doesn't fucking exist anymore. Mm-hmm. And... And even as the insight when he has, when he sees her for the first time to realize, oh, you're different than I imagined you to be. And still is enraptured yeah, with no her. Yeah, no part of him is like, oh, I, I need to go home and think about this for a minute. He's just like, I'm, now nah, I know I'm right. There, he, Things it, will be fine. Nick is talking to him and, and, and uh, uh, Gatsby invites her to the party and he, he thinks he does, she doesn't have a, a good time in, in, uh, he says, and she doesn't understand, he said. She used to be able to understand. We'd sit for hours. He broke off and began to walk up and down a desolate path of fruit rinds and discarded favors and crushed flowers. I wouldn't ask too much of her, I ventured. You can't repeat the past. Oh, yeah, can't is that where he re- goes? Sure yeah. you can. Yeah, I can't wrote repeat that the past, too. he cried incredulously. Why, of course you can. Which is such. 70 pages later, he that's, dies. Yeah, that's such a, uh, a person with money thing to say that's such a like headstrong ignorant like that's so many categories of uh yeah i yeah i've i've and i'm sure we all do you have so many of those friends who are like their plan is so loosely put together where they're like i'm gonna take a year off of school and go do this and you're like how are you gonna pay for it and they're like it'll be fine and you're like yeah i bet it won't yeah you might want to save some money and yeah. they're like ah, everything's fine and you're like there's a difference between believing in yourself and like do you have a passport did right. you even like, do you want a backpack? Fitzgerald? Where you had it? He's just like, I'll go back in time or not go back in time, but I'll make everything the way it was. And you're like, right, dude, how do you plan to do this? And he's like, it'll be great. Yeah. I feel like this entire book, Fitzgerald is saying like, your imagination will lead you astray. Mm-hmm. There's a passage on page 95 where he's, um, uh, 
He's interacting with, with, uh, with Daisy for the first time again. He says, there must have been moments, even that afternoon, when Daisy tumbled short of his dreams, not through her own fault, but because of the colossal vitality of his illusion. It had gone beyond her, beyond everything. He had thrown himself into it with a creative passion, adding to it all the time, decking it out with every bright feather that drifted his way. No amount of fire or freshness can challenge what a man will store up in his ghostly heart. <laughs> Holy shit. And there's there's a oh. there's something about me, there's an undercurrent to this that bothers me. And this just goes to show that, you know, some things never change because I see this all the time in romantic comedies now where a storyline teaches a young man to never ever ever give up. Which is Ugh. a great thing to teach a man, unless, yep. of course, the woman objects. So you have these romantic yeah, comedies right. where uh, uh, the guy's like, oh, man, she got married. And uh, uh, the best friend character goes, hey, never, ever, ever give up. And then he, like, runs and breaks up their marriage. I would love to see a movie where the other guy goes, dude, did you hear what I just fucking yeah. said? It may She's not married. Work. She has kids. And the other guy goes, oh, man, then don't, don't do that. She's probably, maybe let her be. She's probably real happy. The just boldness of white men is astounding. Yeah, it's, it's, so, it's so heartbreaking. Fitzgerald is such a fucking genius when he brings back his father in the end. Yeah. And he shows, it's page 173, the father brings back, he finds this um, copy of Hopalong Cassidy that uh, James had, uh, James Gatz, who turned into Jay Gatsby because he recreated his entire persona. Look here, this is a book he had when he was a boy. It just shows you. And he shows the back cover of the book, and it's like, rise from bed, dumbbell exercise, study electricity, work, baseball and sports, practice elocution, poise, and how to attain it. General resolves, no more smoking or chewing, bath every day, read one improving book or magazine a week, save $5, be better to parents. And the old man says, I came across this book by accident. It just shows you, doesn't it? Like even, at, even when he was a child, he's like, I'm going to be better. I'm going to rise above to like what I should be, which is rich and smart and it's all going to work out. And it doesn't. No. He dies and no one's at the goddamn funeral. No one shows. Hundreds of people came to his parties. Everyone wanted to drink his booze and eat his food and dance around. And no one fucking shows up. His life was worthless. Nothing is there. Sam, everything <laughs> is worthless. Nate. The past is ruining us. Uh, help me. I'm posing right now because Cody is taking Nate. a picture. It's a waste of time. Um, <laughs> there's such an amazing bit. <laughs> We're freezing for a photograph. What, what you've been saying this entire podcast is that you drew so much, this book, you drew so much from your own life. Yeah. That's what brought this book to life. I feel like that's why, that's at the heart of why this book has been successful for so long. Because people can see themselves in Nick and they can see these kinds of people in the universes that they float in and these characters um, remain and will always remain. And I have and a question what, for you on yeah, this yeah. topic. So uh, there were certain points where I was reading it and I could openly, like I left myself notes where I was like, I wonder if I'm missing the point of this because I'm I'm pulling too heavily from my own life of, or what Gatsby was, or I'm sorry, what uh, Fitzgerald was supposed to be writing. The character of Daisy, do you like her? Do you empathize no. with her? Oh, no. Do, do most people? Great question. Because I can't, I can't stand her, but she's just a, kind of a shit person, right? Yes. Okay. It's, it's, a, great, it's a great question. It's a great question. Because uh, right, right out of the gate. I, I always assumed because of what I'd heard about this book, I never read it before reading it um, for this book club. I had it in school, but I didn't because I was lazy. I didn't read it. Um, was that Daisy Buchan Buchanan was the ideal woman. She was the woman that every man wanted, that they all pursued. See, that's what I heard. And then I remember but reading it again, and I was like, is this just pulling from my own life or I just hear wrong? Cause you are a monster. Yeah. I mean, she is okay. Uh, Ashley Curtis. Thank you so much, Ashley, for writing into the podcast. Again, I'm a member of the book club. She says, uh, the characters are still completely deplorable to me for the most part. I could get behind Nick, the narrator, but he doesn't actually insert himself into the story all that often. Daisy is by far the worst to me. I really like the juxtaposition yeah. of all the characters, flaws and faults because most of them don't actually have any good qualities. Gatsby is basically the only person who isn't a hundred percent dreadful. Of 
course, he's severely disillusioned and lies that his parents died, et cetera, et cetera. But at least he has somewhat good intentions for all his misdeeds. No, I, I, she's, I, I don't think that— um, Well, out of the gate, by, by a page 19, uh, right out of the gate— I dismissed her in the way that, like I said, I was like, I wonder if I'm pulling too hard from my real life. Because now if I've met, you know, so many people living in in a big city that are trying to further their own needs, that now if I meet someone and I start with an open heart and I go, hey, I'm Sam, and they do something in that category of selfishness, I will immediately go, oh, never mind, fuck Mm -hmm. you. Uh, Mm -hmm. So right out of the gate, I'm willing to give her a chance. On page 19, 19 pages into the book, she, uh, they, he, Nick bumps into Tom and her, he goes over there and he goes, uh, she, uh, Daisy says, hey, I forgot to ask you something, and it's important. We heard you were engaged to a girl out west. That's right, corroborated Tom kindly. We heard that you were engaged. At this point, Nick openly goes, it's a libel. I'm too poor. He just calls it out. And Daisy goes, but we heard it, insisted Daisy, surprising me by opening up in a flowery-like way. Flower-like way. Uh-huh. We heard it from three people, so it must be true. At, w- at this point... I know the book wants us to be the straight man and say it out loud, but I wish there was a line in the book where Nick goes, what did I just say? No, no. What did I just fucking and say to you? And that's the genius of Fitzgerald. I, I wrote uh, window into their psyches. Yeah. That is, that's the genius of Fitzgerald being able to see beneath the surface of these interactions amongst mm-hmm. these people. Um, I also, I, I wrote down on page 92 in terms of Daisy. I out loud, I was reading this in my apartment. I out loud, uh, to myself and my cat uh, said, oh, I hate you. To Daisy, there's a point where, first off, Gatsby's terrible in this moment. He goes, I've got a man in England who buy, buys me clothes. Uh, fuck you, man. Uh, and this then, is the shirt. Uh, yeah, so he pulls out the pile of shirts. This is great. Daisy bent her head into the shirts and began to cry stormily. They're just such beautiful shirts. Yeah. I hate you. Yeah. Oh, you're just the worst. <laughs> I hate you so much. And that's, again, I know this girl from a party who's sure. just crying and sobbing and is like, the life's just so beautiful. And I'm yep. like, just be quiet. He's, you uh, don't care about any of this. Would you just like some attention? And and, and it's so great towards the end, um, after all the shit goes down, Nick says to him, he says, uh, he, sa- he, he talks, he says, uh, about this group of people, he says, they're a rotten crowd. Yeah. You're worth the whole, you're worth the whole damn bunch put together. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're running out of time, so I want to I, uh, I finish up with some last, some last, Cody's giving us the... Well, uh, I want to add one thing in please. real quick before we do about Daisy. I, I mentioned this to you before we started recording, and it sounds like I'm making a joke, but I'm being serious. So many of the characters in here, this takes place in 1920. These personality traits really just sound like people fired up on cocaine. Like, there's a point in the next page, she goes, look at me, or look at that, she whispered after a moment. I'd just like to get in one of those pink clouds and put you in it and push you around. What? What are you fucking talking? What are you saying? Shut up. Like, these are all people at parties here in LA just coked out of their minds being like, hey, I have a really good idea. And I'm like, you don't. We've had this conversation every Friday. You tell me the same thing. I forget what page page it's on, but towards the beginning of the book, Nick gets back home. It's like two in the morning. He even says it's around two o'clock. It's two in the morning. He gets home and uh, Gatsby's in his bushes. He walks around (laughs) the corner. Gatsby steps out and Nick's like, dude, what? And he goes, he goes, we should hang out. He goes, we should go to Coney Island. It's fucking two in the morning. Right. That's just straight. That's the behavior of, yeah, I'm at a party in L.A. It's 2 in the morning. They bring the bar lights up, and somebody goes, we're going to an after party. And I'm like, no, we're not. Yeah. Go home. Right. Go home. Go to sleep. Have a glass of water. Why? Right. Don't. We're not all fired up and coked out of our gourds. This party's done. But some of us are. And then he, he even writes after that. He's like, I don't know if he went to Coney Island or not. or if, Oh, no, that's what he says after that. He goes, uh, you want to go to Coney Island? And Nick's like, no. And he goes, well, then we'll go swimming. Yeah, and he's like, you want to swim no, in my pool? No, I don't want to go swim I, in your pool. Because I haven't swam in it all season. Yeah. The guy owns a pool, he hasn't swam in it, which is a great little touch. So we're finishing up, um, and I want to finish with the end of the book because it's um, maybe the most famous closing of a novel in American history. On page 176, it, this, is, this is less to do about um, the meta look at, 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 the macro look at what Fitzgerald was saying. And this is sort of a micro, just like, Just as lyricism is beautiful, page 176, after Gatsby's death, 
The East was haunted for me like that, distorted beyond my eyes' power of corrections. So when the blue smoke of brittle leaves was in the air and the wind blew the wet laundry stiff on the line, I decided to come back home. It's just such a fucking beautiful passage. I want to finish it off here with the end, um, which is just heartbreaking to me. I, 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 it's like... The, the pursuit of the American dream, to me, it's like he's saying the pursuit of the American dream gets you what? Besides like rich, that rich will not be enough. It will not, what you're, what you're desiring will not bring you happiness. Uh, he describes how, so he's standing on the shore. Most of the big shore places were closed now, and there were hardly any lights except the shadowy moving glow of a ferry boat across the sound. And as the moon rose higher, the inessential houses began to melt away until gradually I became aware of the old island here that flowered once for a Dutch sailor's eyes, a fresh green breast of the new world. Its vanished trees, the trees that had made way for Gatsby's house, had once pandered in whispers to the last and greatest of all human dreams. For a transitory, enchanted moment, man must have held his breath in the presence of this continent, compelled into an aesthetic contemplation he neither understood nor desired, face to face for the last time in history... <laughs> with something commensurate to his capacity for wonder. Fitzgerald is saying the last time that someone's dreams actually came true was when the Dutch founded America. After that, it's been a fucking disaster. And I close with the final passage here, which is just so fucking heartbreaking. And as I sat there brooding in the old unknown world, I thought of Gatsby's wonder when he first picked out the green light at the end of Daisy's Dock. He had come a long way to this blue lawn, and this dream must have seemed so close they could hardly fail to grasp it. He did not know that it was already behind him, somewhere back in that vast obscurity beyond the city where the dark fields of the Republic rolled on under the night. Gatsby, Gatsby believed in the green light, the orgastic future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then... But that's no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out our arms farther, and one fine morning. So we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. The past controls us. I'm, I'm ending the quote. The past, this is now Nate editorializing. The past controls us the future will never be what we hope it to be, and we'll never be able to get rid of the past. Sure you can, Nate. Ha <laughs> <laughs> uh, We've been talking about F. Scott Fitzgerald's classic, The Great Gatsby, written in 1925. If you haven't read it, uh, you should. It's, uh, it lives up to the hype. Um, we'll be back with another episode of Reading Aloud next week where I talked to Sasha Pfeiffer, who won a Pulitzer for her work as a member of the Spotlight team. Uh, Sam was there for that conversation. Yeah, that's a, this is a great one. It's a really great one. Um, uh, Rachel McAdams is nominated for an Academy Award for her performance of Sasha. Uh, I've been in touch with Sasha since the interview, and she will be out here. Uh, she's going to the Oscars, which is very exciting for her. So that's going to air Friday, uh, the Friday before the Oscars, I mean, which I think is the... 26th or something. So that's coming up next week. And to announce the next book club choice, um, this got such a great response. I had more emails. I'm sorry I didn't get to all of them. I had more emails about this book than any other book. And this is like the 15th book club. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep on the, uh, the classic conversation. And we're going to uh, switch from Fitzgerald to his contemporary and his pal, who eventually they didn't like each other because... He was cruel to Fitzgerald, Hemingway. We're moving on to Ernest Hemingway. He was a man. He killed bulls and had many wives and shot himself in the head. Uh, his Perhaps his most famous novel, uh, A Farewell to Arms, about war. It's about an ambulance driver who falls in love with a nurse and shit goes down. Uh, A Farewell to Arms is the next book club choice 
Get it, folks. Why did you just write a Nazi symbol on your on your uh, notebook? Oh, that Sam? was a note to Cody earlier. I didn't think he was recording the phone call. This is really weird. We're moving on. Please tune in next week. <laughs> I want you to be a part of the book club. And uh, thanks so much for tuning in to Reading Aloud. Uh, Sam, thanks so much for joining me. You got it, man. I love you. And Cody, I love you too. And Cody, thanks for wearing a backpack throughout this podcast. Got to break it in. My name is Nate Cordry. This is a show. You've been listening to it. Listen to more. Hey, Earwolf listeners, this is Hillary Frank from The Longest Shortest Time. On our show, we talk to parents. I just put sex on the list of things that I have to do that day as soon as the baby goes to sleep. We talk to kids. Sex in a boat, sex in a wolf, sex in Jupiter. And we talk about how those kids were made in the first place. I'm pulling down his pants, you know, hurry up, just do it. (laughs) The Longest Shortest Time, it's a family show for grown-ups. Listen at longestshortesttime.com, earwolf.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Pop. Pop? Pop. 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 This has been a Wolf Pop production. Executive produced by Paul Shear, Adam Sachs, Chris Bannon, and Matt Gorley. For more information and content, visit wolfpop.com.